0: Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail, a major hospital rebuild in the Deep South. This is a big and exciting opportunity for Dunedin. It will be the largest hospital build in New Zealand. This is really significant. Uh, This project has been talked about for a long time. But it's been massively scaled back.
1: There are reports of cost-cutting in the plans for Dunedin's new hospital. Proposals apparently include reducing the number of beds and operating theatres and dropping entire wards. Some services have had to be cut from the design of Dunedin's new hospital to manage budget pressures due to rising construction costs and delays.
0: Te Order has admitted the government's desire to cut nearly $100 million from the new Dunedin Hospital build has delayed its opening by almost a year. Building a state-of-the-art hospital is a a once-in-a-generation project. How has it turned into such a debacle? It's an impossible sell. They're trying to sell us something less than fit for purpose. I'm ready to march again. I'm getting ready to paint my placards. And I think I'll start with health cuts don't heal. Mike Houlihan is the associate editor of the Otago Daily Times. He's spent years covering the Dunedin Hospital rebuild and why
1: it's so desperately needed. The current hospital is a conglomeration of buildings, some of which date back over 100 years, some of which date back to 1965. Some of them are still perfectly adequate today. Others are well and truly beyond their use-by date. There was uh, an indicative business case done in 2017 uh, by a firm called Sapire that does a lot of consulting for the Ministry of Health, and it highlighted what was already well known by clinicians and the wider community, that the current uh, clinical services building in particular is just simply no longer fit for purpose. It leaks, as does the ward block, which is the other main building in the hospital complex. They're both riddled with asbestos, and they're simply not built for modern medicine. For example, the simply not enough power points in many parts of the building to be able to run all the equipment that doctors require for treatment these days. A lot of the space is cramped because uh, it was built in a concrete pillar construction. It's difficult to, you know, you can't just knock a wall out because you'll knock the entire building down if you do. So when they, for example, put a new intensive care unit into the building, work which is still ongoing due to ventilation issues, uh, it took them quite some time to come up with a design that was workable because they had to sort of go round in flexible corners. We've known for a long, long time that uh, that we needed a new hospital. It was simply a matter of who was going to put their signature on the bottom line and say, we support it. The government of Bill English made the first commitment to it.
0: I'm very pleased to announce uh, that the government will be supporting the redevelopment, the complete rebuild of the Dunedin Hospital.
1: Although Labour made an election promise before the, uh, before the election that Jacinda Ardern won, saying that they would start construction of it by 2020. We're committing to making sure that the hospital is built in the city. We'll be able to deliver the hospital much, much earlier than the government is promising. The two of them still argue to this day as to who made the first firm commitment as to who was going to build the hospital. But certainly when they announced the site of the hospital, which is a whole other argument, the commitment at that stage was that construction would start by 2020. Trying to decide where to build it was the first and major argument that was had. It was accepted by almost all parties that something had to be done, that the Eden Hospital simply wasn't going to be able to function beyond probably 2030 at the most in several parts of it, so something had to be done.
0: So they chose the old Cadbury site, did they, in the end? The old Cadbury Chocolate Factory. Why was that the site that
1: they chose? Well, it was serendipity really that, uh, that Mondelez, who had bought Cadbury a few years beforehand, decided that they wanted to sell the company and shut down the factory. That meant that there was suddenly an enormous parcel of land free in the the, in the central city.
0: So if you went past it now, if some, if you just drove past it now, what would it look like?
1: Uh, it would look like a very large expanse of flatland and concrete is what it would look like right now with some steel piles poking up in the air. It, it's difficult to visit your hospital there now.
0: So explain to me this dispute of funding and what's happened.
1: It comes down to size, scale, the number of beds, the number of operating theatres, the, the number of services that are inside the hospital. When the, um, the 2017 indicative business case was done, they talked about the need for 481 beds in the hospital. That's now come down through a, a series of iterations. Government construction projects don't just put a consent in for a four-bedroom house and then build it. They go through an enormous series of budget points. They go through indicative business cases, business cases, detailed business cases, and then they finally, if you're lucky, get signed off by Cabinet. So We've, went, we've gone from 481 in the initial indicative business case and they suggested maybe 17 theatres would be required. Then we ended up with 410 in the detailed business case and 23 theatres uh, and by the time we got to the detailed business case we ended up with 398 beds 12 of which will be shelled, that's to be opened up at a later date, and 24 theatres with 4 to be shelled, 2 MRIs down from 3 and there was going to be a PET scanner put in place that's now also going to be shelled.
0: And when was this news released? When did that come out that that was going to be the case.
1: That was just before Christmas. Since we were promised a brand spanking shiny new hospital back in 2018, we've seen a constant whittling away of the size and the amount of services that it will be in there. I asked a, a senior clinician a few weeks ago if what we have now is the least worst scenario that clinicians could stomach and was told yes. The budget's gone out to 1.58 billion and the current rate of inflation and the current expense of building materials no one can say that this is where the end of the budget is going to be the announcement was made just before christmas added 110 million dollars to the budget but that was contingent on 90 million dollars worth of savings being found within the design of the hospital the 1.5 billion dollar projects under pressure to claw back a 200 million dollar budget blowout the government stumped up just over half leaving 90 million dollars to be saved by design changes which is where the current rail sit. People here uh, could be told, look, it's only a couple of beds. We'll put them back in, in the future. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. But what they're deeply concerned about is this is the thin end of the wedge and that you keep cutting now. And bear in mind that this design has not been signed off and approved and consented yet. There is still the chance that it can be reduced still further. They worry that this is not going to be the hospital that they hoped and dreamed that their children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren will be treated in in the future. This is, uh, as I said, an incredibly important regional facility that generations are going to be going through. They'll be having important life events in this building and they want to know that it's fit for purpose and they've got a right for that. They're paying their taxes for it
0: so we have all these issues at the moment with the funding and locals are really angry we need to fight like hell for our community for our people for our city
2: and for the wider region
1: they are, uh, and they have a right to be. We were promised a state-of-the-art hospital fit for purpose for now and to the future when it was built. Now, I still am absolutely sure it will be a terrific facility and that the staff will do a remarkable job in it, because the health staff always do. They're, uh, they're dedicated professionals. But the question remains whether it will still be fit for purpose in the future.
0: So what has been the reaction of local authorities and other local people that are concerned?
1: Uh, well, there's two camp- public campaigns running side by side at the moment. Ourself at the Otago Daily Times, we're running the uh, "Your Health, is, Our Health is Priceless campaign. Uh, we think that you can't put too high a price on the future wealth and health of a generation. These are the future leaders, the future of our province. This is the, the lifeblood of Otago and Southland that we're talking about. Uh, related to that and allied, the DCC is also running, the Deedon City Council is also running its own campaign.
0: Dunedin City Council making its stance clear on government cuts to the city's planned new hospital. Well, we're feeling very focused. We're feeling very determined. So
1: are we going to see rallies or protests around Dunedin? Well, there have been low-key protests already. There was a rally in the octagon. There was talk of other activities. A lot of it depends on, on what impact the uh, the campaigns have. We've gone through this in a smaller degree uh, a few years ago uh, when there was an attempt to take the neurosurgery service away from Dunedin. The, um, the community at that stage rallied vociferously. There was an, one of the largest protest marches that Dunedin's ever seen down George Street. Well, the message uh, being sent from the streets of Dunedin this lunchtime is very simple and very clear. And they're saying to the minister, the health minister, Tony Ryle, that neurosurgery services must be retained in Dunedin. A campaign that was successful. So, uh, you yeah, know, we are pretty much at the point where we're defending the turf we've got, pretty much. Uh, if uh, if anything more goes, uh, that will cause enormous problems.
2: Yeah, my name is John Chambers. Uh, I'm a doctor in Dunedin, working in the emergency department, although I actually retire next week. This is my final, the final week of my career.
0: And I've uh, been in Dunedin for 30 years. Over that time, John Chambers has been head of Dunedin Hospital's emergency department and served two terms on the Southern District Health Board. He's not just a frontline worker, he's been involved in the planning of the rebuild. But let's rewind first of all. He says when he arrived in the 90s from Scotland, Dunedin was a place to be. And there were
2: jobs available in the UK. But this advert appeared for an exciting opportunity in Dunedin to be a consultant in a teaching hospital. In a hospital that had almost every specialty that you could desire. You know, neurosurgery, cardiac surgery, quite unique for the size of the city. Uh, And I thought that looks like a good place to go and have a look at. And I came out and uh, took the job.
0: And what was it like when you got here? How well resourced was the hospital?
2: I, I think the, the hospital as it was built and in, in, I think opened in 1980 was very good, very well set up with the, all the wards, all the specialties, the theatres, etc. And the university facilities and the lecture theatres and, and, and the university wing on each floor uh, with offices for the professors, etc. To me, the, the only final piece in the puzzle was that the emergency department wasn't very good. That was my focus to try and improve the emergency department and make it, bring it up to date.
0: Did you improve
2: the emergency department over that time? I did, but it was a hard struggle. It really was a hard struggle. We actually got a new, a new department opened in 1998, about five years after I arrived, uh, and it was pretty good. It, it was really good. it was opened by Bill, Bill English, and it was quite good. Not perhaps not as big as I would have wished, but uh, certainly an improvement on what what I inherited when I arrived.
0: OK, so by 98, did you feel that it was a really good, sustainable hospital? Uh, yes,
2: yes. It, it, everything was you know, certainly taking along quite nicely. And it was. I suppose it was um, later on, about 2013, about 10 years ago, uh, when the plans to revitalise and refurbish the hospital floor by floor um, for the future were starting to look not good enough uh, and the problems with the intensive care unit in particular highlighted that.
1: A series of postponements and cancellations to scheduled operations at Dunedin Hospital not because the surgeons weren't available but because there were insufficient ICU beds to care for patients after
2: surgery. And they realised that they wouldn't be able to refit the old hospital and, uh, and they better plan for a new one on a new site.
0: So how would you describe the hospital as it is now?
2: Well I think like like all hospitals around the world we we're we are struggling at the moment this is a friday morning i'm speaking on and at this morning our emergency department is what you call code red which is you know pretty full to bursting. And I think this morning half of the beds in the emergency department this morning are occupied by patients who actually came into hospital yesterday. But there are no, there are no beds in the wards for them to go upstairs to fill. So um, this is the sort of thing which happens and ends up with the terrible situation of people having their elective surgery cancelled on the day. They, uh, you know Some patients end up having their, their elective surgery cancelled, even though they, they may have waited for it for months or even years. And that's a devastating thing to happen to our patients. And, and obviously it's upsetting for staff that have to break, them the, break the news to them. So that that's that's where we are today, unfortunately. I've seen some information about pressure on
0: emergency departments and other areas. Nothing, I've never seen um, a code black belt. What's led to this?
2: I think it's just a, just a growth in demand. A growth in demand and the number of patients requiring care, the complexity of the care and the complexity of the patients um, blowing out. The waiting lists are very long. And the, the wards are, are struggling with the number of beds that they have resourced. And sometimes that's a staffing problem. Sometimes we don't have enough staff on the day to open some beds in the wards and that,
0: that, that adds to the pressure. John was first elected to the DHB in 2013 and he was on the board for two years before commissioners were brought in. He served a second term as an elected member from 2019 through to 2022 when Te Whatu Ora replaced the 20 DHBs. When you were in that DHB what was the vision of this new hospital? Oh, to be, you know, obviously, to be a state of the art hospital and to
2: clearly hold on to those services that have been in the need for decades, you know, hard fought and developed by great people over the decades. So tell me about the original
0: plan in the mid 2010s.
2: Well, I think there was a lot, a lot of planning meetings were about how, how will care be delivered in future? Will it be different? Uh, in particular, will more care be, be more surgery be provided as a day case and day surgery, uh, and will some care that perhaps now done in the hospital be done in the community, uh, closer to home? And perhaps the, the hospital. There are heaps of plans developed by a company called Sapiri, one of these consultancy agencies who um, you know do the consultant work for the government, uh, and they mapped out the population growth and what we might require in terms of beds in the new hospital. And then it went off to the ministry and it was sort of sent back with, well, make it a bit smaller because, um, you know, these new models of care, these new models of care might mean that we don't need quite as many beds. And so eventually, after much, much debate, a um, final size was was decided on. Um, but clearly it was when David Clark, after the election came up 2017, uh, David Clark became the Minister of Health and that's where the actual laws started to be passed to get the funding approved for the uh, for the hospital and here we are six years later.
0: When the DHBs were disbanded, were you happy with the progress and where the hospital was going?
2: Yes, yes. Be, you know, people had reservations about the, the a little bit of this guesswork in terms of just how how many beds can you reduce uh, as part of this, these new models of care. Um, there's a bit of guesswork there and always a little bit of risk that you, you might not get it right uh, and the, the, the hospital may be a bit on the small side when it finally opens so there's always that a bit of concern and, and certainly that's what's happened around the world hospitals have opened in australia and in the uk which uh, on the day of opening seemed to be just perfect but within a month or two months or three months they're full to bursting so there's always that slight concern that slight doubt that you you might have been a bit too tight and making assumptions about what's going to
0: happen in the future how long should we expect the hospital to, to last? It's about forty
2: years a hospital lasts for. Um, and if you look, look at what happened um, in Dunedin when I arrived, the hospital was about ten years old. It had been designed in the sixties, built in the seventies, opened in nineteen eighty. But then, then you find about thirty years later that it's, not, it's just not up to the scratch. And so, about ten years ago, which is about when the hospital was about thirty years old, you start to realise that you have to improve it. As we're finding out, it takes about twenty years from then till the new one opens. It's a it's a never ending process um, of you know upgrading and replacement of these important public buildings.
0: So, what's happened since the DHBs were disbanded in terms of the hospital rebuild and where it's at now?
2: From the point of view of of what was made public. Uh, very little happened until f- the Friday before Christmas when they knew the that the go-ahead was given for the final uh, budgetary go-ahead, uh, but with quite a bit of change in that $90 million cut. Clearly, behind the scenes, there had been a heck of a lot of work done, an awful lot of work done by the local planning team and the architects to try and accommodate these $90, 000, $90 million cuts in the floor, which had all Done, achieved by reducing the floor space uh, in terms of square metres. And eventually, really, they'd gone by service by service, seeing what people would could, could put up with in terms of uh, cuts and live with, and retain what they could, um, but still making this $90 million uh, potential budgetary saving. So there had been lots of work done uh, on quite quietly behind the scene before the final announcement was made. But And when the final announcement was made, clearly it was a bit of a shock to a population. How did you feel about it? Uh, well, I, I in the very last board meeting uh, in June, uh, we'd sort of been told about the $90 million problem but that perhaps it could be found somewhere. You know, it could be found either locally or maybe on the South Island from some wealthy organisation or, uh, or some some sort of arrangement could be worked out, uh, and and they would get that ninety million dollar and then just proceed with the, the
0: hospital as planned. Was that made public or was that no behind no,
2: no, no 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 it wasn't public, um, and uh, clearly they, that that wasn't that avenue of trying to seek find the funding wasn't pursued. I um, uh, I don't know why that happened. Um, it may it may actually have happened by default, because simply once the once the DHB was a, was disbanded, there's simply nobody with the responsibility or authority or mandate to negotiate anything for Southern, no, because we no longer have a board. The closest thing we'll have to a board will be in Christchurch, what's called the regional board in Christchurch, and I don't know who's going to be on that board, but it's not actually established. So during these months, while well, Ora is being sort of settling in. I think a lot of things are just sort of ticking over by default. Um, The organisation isn't really ticking along very well at the moment.
0: There's no local voice. There's hardly anyone in Dunedin to campaign for, for you. Oh, well, well, and that
2: gap has clearly been filled by our our mayor and our councillors, who who you know read the information and decided they wanted to try and do something about it. Uh, and this is very interesting because um, when you go back to to the history of the health system in New Zealand, way back in eighteen eighty five, there was an act passed called the Hospital and Charitable Institutions Act. And, just, and the gist the, and the main drive of that act was to ensure there were local members on hospital boards and they, were, they should come from within the council and be elected from within the council. So there's been a relationship between councils and hospital boards for over a century. And, and also the, they must have had good reason to think that was important to do in 1885. They must have thought we need people who are local on hospital boards to make the right decisions and we need people who have been selected in some way and have, have some sort of degree of accountability to the local population. So it's, it, comes, it actually comes as no surprise to me that um, within a few months of the board being disbanded, who's speaking out for the hospital? It's the council. It's the mayor. And I think that that's the same thing is going to happen um, looking forward uh, in the regional areas of Otago, where the regional mayors will find themselves having to argue for uh, the best they can for health facilities for their local population and their, their, their electorate.
0: Well, there was that idea of having a locality, wasn't there?
2: Yes, the regions are now good to be called localities, and such as you know, uh, Balclutha or Dunstan, um, Central Otago. It's still being worked. It'll have to all be worked through. It'll have to be established. It's not. It's not really been made, decided how it's all going to work yet. There have been some winners so far. I think uh, up in Omuru they've got a big funding hike just recently out of Te which is very good for their, for their population. But as you may have read, now Gore are a bit, are a bit unhappy <laughs> because they, they haven't had a big funding hike and they have just as many you know, problems in service service delivery. So there's going to be battles to fight in each city to try and get the best they can for their, for their local population in the new system.
0: Is this still going to be a big improvement from what you've got now? I, well, I think
2: that it, it, the, the, I, in terms of the quality of the building, why it's so expensive, um, the, the quality of the theatres and all that sort of thing and the, the, the rooms for patients and the ventilation and the infection control uh, and, and the computerisation... There are going to be amazing advances. It will really look very flash, I think, when it opens. And, uh, and as I say, much more safe in terms of infection control, uh, and some of the, the, the equipment in the operating theatres, and what they call the uh, hybrid operating rooms, which have like scanners in the actual operating room. There's going to be a lot of a lot of modernisation, a lot of good changes in the new in the new hospital. But it's actually it's quite a few years away. It you know, it's now going to be 2029 20, by it eventually opens
0: how do you feel now i mean there's a big
2: campaign going along oh i think it's early days. i think i think the uh, the mayor and the councillors are doing a good job they're well briefed they know what they're talking about they know the information uh and they know what they what they're arguing for uh, I think there'll be some movement. It, it's a false, false economy to cut things out in 2022 um, for a, something that's not opening till 2029. Uh, it will cost far too much money to catch up uh, in, uh, in 10 years down the track. So I think uh, maybe there'll be a little bit of movement, hopefully, with all this, uh, this campaigning that the Council are, are embarking on.
0: But if Te Fatu ora do
2: nothing? They, they won't do nothing. They, they can't do nothing. You, you, can't, you can't not respond to, it, to such a well-run well, well run and well-publicised campaign by concerned people. Um, uh, there'll, there'll have to be some uh, some movement and some adjustment. It's only sensible,
0: I think. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund, Today's episode was engineered by Phil Bench. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Mike Houlihan and John Chambers. Ka kite anō.